Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back, everybody. Today is my pleasure to introduce Professor Yok Chin Chia, who is a clinician and a head of the Department of Medical Sciences, Sandway University in Malaysia. She's also the immediate past president of the Malaysia Society of Hypertension. At the International Society of Hypertension, she's a member of the Asia Pacific Regional Advisory Group. Uh, Professor Yok uh, Ching, uh, what a pleasure to be here with you today and thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Very nice meeting you, Francine. It's good to be able to see your face you know, as well while we are having this conversation. Um, so let's uh, dig into it. So can you tell us about your story and how you ended up involved in uh, research, what sparked your interest to become a clinician and how you uh, ended up with um, studying hypertension? Well, my, 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 in my, my sort of foray into academia was actually quite accidental. You know, it could be called serendipity, if you like. Because what happened was after I finished my postgraduate uh, training in internal medicine, I was then at a crossroad to decide which subspecialty I wanted to do. And in my mind, it was endocrinology. But then a new department, uh, academic department, uh, the first of its kind in Malaysia, was set up in the University of Malaya, where I, where I trained and where I graduated from. And the head then uh, invited me to be a lecturer at the Department of Primary Care Medicine. So I was basically moving from internal medicine in you know, hospital-based sort of training into purely outpatient uh, practice. So I just sort of stumbled into it. And before I know it, the head resigned within a year and I was landed holding the baby, you know, in, so to say. Wow. Uh, but of course, when I look back, it has been a great career uh, 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 for me. I have totally no regrets at all. So while I was at the University of Malaya as the lecturer at the newly founded Department of Primary Care Medicine, equivalent to general practice, uh, one of the lecturers, or we call them lecturers, of course, they are registrars, who was, uh, when I was doing my, my postgraduate training at the hospital, uh, then became the deputy director of the uh, teaching hospital of the university. And he was the one who first invited me to do clinical trials in hypertension. It was the, the rage then because, you know, the early days where the rust blockers, the, 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 particularly the ACE and the, and the ARBs were all, you know, new coming to the market. So there were many clinical trials that were being done. So we were just one of the sites uh, uh, for the recruitment of individuals and carrying out the, the, the study. And he was also the one, uh, uh, Professor C.T. Chua, was also the one who invited me, uh, who nominated me, I think, uh, to the uh, Malaysian Society, the Malaysian Consensus on Hypertension, which I'm still a member of for the last, I think, more than 15 years. So we are in our latest edition that was in 2018. Also because of uh, my involvement in clinical trials, I met yet another colleague, 
uh, who I didn't know them, but as usual, I was very chatty. And soon after our meeting, those were the days when we all get flown out to some, some you know, center uh, out of the country where all the investigators of the sites uh, participate in the discussion to be told how the trial is going to run and so on and so forth. And then a few days after we returned, he called me and said, uh, I would like to invite you to be uh, in the Council of the Malaysian Society of Hypertension, which was actually being revived. It was started six years before I joined, but it was very silent, sort of, you know, maybe on the back burner and being revived. And I said, what do I have to do? He says, all you have to do is just pay, pay the $30 fee and you come in. And so there again, I've been a member council member, president, and I'm still there. So it's been very, very good uh, uh, in terms of that. And partly because of involvement in the society, involvement in clinical trials, that I got noticed by, you know, in those days, pharmaceutical always runs a lot of CMEs. So I got to be invited to be a speaker. And I, I, I suppose I did quite a, a credible job that they kept inviting me to do it. And to this day, I'm still doing those sort of talks. What the clinical trial taught me, of course, was useful information. But at the same time, I also felt that clinical trials are not what I myself want to do or design. It, the protocol just comes to us. We are practically just doing out, you know, carrying out the protocol that they, they tell us. So that was when I, you know, sort of started looking at original research. And uh, I've done many types of uh, research. Uh, patient-based research in particular. And from there, that's where most of my, my, my output, my publications, the information that I got from that was local data because we had very little local data that then went into our Malaysian uh, guidelines on hypertension. So that was useful. And I felt that it had some meaning rather than just doing more of the same. So that's how it went. So, 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 so to this day, I'm still in academia. Uh, 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 and uh, I help to still train students, but in slightly different field now. I've taken on a new uh, uh, a program, which I thought was very important, and that's to train primary care doctors in care of the older adults, which I started. So it's running for the third year now. Oh, absolutely. That's very important work. Uh, thank you for sharing. That's uh, fascinating uh, to learn more about your uh, career path. And, uh, and the many opportunities that you had along the way. Uh, and I think that's really a topic uh, that we're going to talk about mentoring today as a result. Um, I also wanted to ask you about your opinion on uh, participating in committees. You have served in a series of committees, you still do, had uh, significant leadership roles as the president of uh, the Malaysia Society of Hypertension. I was wondering if you can comment on the importance that uh, being part of these committees and serving in these committees has had on your career development and progression. I mean, certainly being on the committees are very important. Uh, partly you get to meet lots of colleagues, which are very important for networking. Uh, you also get to, to, you know, what I found is by being invited to give talks, I had to go and read up a lot of things, learn a lot of things, think about it, think it through, how I was going to put it into practice. What is it that my audience, and you know, mainly there'll be general uh, primary care doctors, what is it that they want to know or they need to know? And that's how I shaped my talks. Uh, 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 you know, so, 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 and I think that's the reason why I get invited again, because the audience find that useful, you know, hands-on practical uh, 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 tips that, because I do practice and that's how, that's how it comes about. 
so sitting on these committees have been very, very useful, as I said. Um, and also, when I was in the committee, of course, I also shaped a few things. Uh, so what should be done, should not be done. Like I said, why don't we have a hypertension, uh, home blood pressure consensus to my society? And they say, oh, yes, let's do that. And of course, what we call in Malaysia, usus, you suggest you suffer. <laughs> so I was asked to chair that. And so I have to develop that consensus I as well. <laughs> yeah. But I find it all very nice to do. I enjoy it a lot because I work with people who, who, who are very much, you know, in the same same field, are very much in the same wavelength, and it is has been great in that sense. Well, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. And um, I want to ask you some questions about uh, mentoring. Um, can you define your mentoring uh, mentorship experience in one word, please? Can, can I just go back a little bit because I, I, yeah. I was thinking about committees being very time-consuming and I think yeah, yeah, it's yeah. reassuring for people to, to, to volunteer to be in committees. One good thing about our committees here is we all meet in the weekends, in the evenings wow. and weekends. So we give up all our weekends for all those, primarily because many of the committee members or people who are experts or well-respected clinicians are in private practice so they cannot afford to take time off their private wow. practice to do it during the daytime so we had all our practice guidelines meetings in the evening you know starting from seven o'clock work to 10 p.m and the weekends so in a way yes we have to make sacrifices but i think we ought to make some sacrifices uh in order to contribute more than what is our daily work yeah that, that's very interesting can I ask you about the gender balance in these committees and, okay. uh, and uh, women representation in particular? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there is a deliberate uh, exclusion or inclusion of women in Malaysia. I think it, in general, in Malaysia, women are actually well represented in many, many fields. Okay, yeah, wonderful. Uh, we have got a, 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 a woman who is the, the the, the bank, the, the national bank's governor. We've got, you know, uh, 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 the VCs who are vice chancellors who are female. So I, I do not think there's that much gender problem in Malaysia. You know, our medical students, more than 50% are women anyway. So therefore, I do not think we, 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 we have that unless the men are doing it and I'm not aware of it, but I do not feel it's a problem. But having said that, it also was very, uh, maybe obvious because when we were doing the media launching of our renal nerve innovation consensus, the person who was interviewing us was actually a professional from, you know, from somewhere uh, uh, in the media and said, how is it that you're the only woman there? And how is it that you're only primary care when it's all the rest are cardiologists? But it wasn't a deliberate thing. Uh, I think in hypertension, uh, I would say in the committee, I am one of the few, I'm the woman, and what I did was to, to, to sort of, not so much to increase the number of women, but because I come from primary care and because most of the doctors in primary care are women. So that's when I nominated another colleague who is a woman in my department, another trainee who has, of course, advanced the career, all into all these committees as well. And so in some ways, the women are represented, not by deliberate selection, but by default in the sense that, you know, who the people I know uh, in my field, in my in my primary care field, are women mainly. Okay, yeah, no, the, the reason that I asked is because here in Australia, there is a big push for meetings to be between 
pen and tree because a lot of women are responsible for drop-off and pickups from school. So they try to arrange meetings in the time, like in the working hours, that women will be present to try to increase representation from women. And yeah. that was the question, like if the meetings are being held on weekends and evenings, whether we're still being able to achieve that. But that's wonderful that you, you have identified uh, other female colleagues that can join and they're able to participate as well. The, the other thing about Malaysia is that we all can get mates, you know, so all of our picking up of children, housework, all done by mates, and that frees us up for all these things. We are fortunate, but I think that's going to change because we're not going to be able to afford mates. We're not going to have mates from, you know, uh, foreign countries. We have Indonesian, Filipinos, Myanmar people who come and work in our country as mates. So that's going to disappear soon. Yeah, yeah. Interesting point. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I have been fascinated about all these interviews that I get the opportunity to talk to people from all over the world and to see the differences in culture and the, on a daily basis that have such an impact on the ability of uh, women to become leaders and the support that they have to do so. Absolutely. I think, you know, that helps the, the, the social, uh, environmental uh, uh, situation. Uh, does help a lot, a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, very fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so going back to mentoring. Going back to me. I mean, you could edit this. Uh, that's why I said I salute women, uh, particularly in the West, you know, like uh, in UK, where they have to hold down a job, take care of the family, take care of the children, and try to be successful and manage their own life. I salute them because my sister is one of them in UK. She's got no mage, has to do all that, and she's a pathologist. I say I salute you. I, I will find it very, very stressful. I can work. So I salute women who work full-time career, take care of family, uh, not only her own family and house, but extended family as well in very, Malaysia. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very true. Yeah. No, Sorry, I interrupted you in the question. No, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, no, I was just going to um, ask you about your mentorship experience and uh, ask if you can define that uh, in one word. Uh, I think very important, extremely important. Two words. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> crucial, critical. Okay, maybe crucial or critical if that's okay. Yeah. Crucial. Yeah. Crucial, yeah. important. So no. do you want to expand on that? Do, do you think mentorship is important? Uh, you know, I remember asking uh, Dr. Peter Sabber, who is the, 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 the first author of the Escort study. I happened to meet him in one of the, the, the conferences where I was a speaker, so we all got to meet each other. I said, what makes one a, you know, how do you ensure that you can be successful in your career, either as an academic or, or even as a, uh, a researcher? He said, three things. You need to work very hard. You need to have a mentor and serendipity. So I look back my career, I think all three, I probably needed all these three things. Uh, whether I'm successful or not, it's another, it's another matter that's for others to judge. But what I, what we need is this. So a mentor, of course, is very important. Although I did not have a met, one mentor, but I had people who helped me along the way. Uh, 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 and that, of course, really made things easier, all the leaps and the hurdles that I, I went through made was a lot easier. So, so mentorship is important. Uh, and, and also I'm looking at uh, 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 what I'm doing now for my 
mentees, people I mentor. Be not because I was mentored, but because I am an academic, I train uh, 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 postgraduate training in family medicine. They are, when I'm appointed, given students, I, they are with me for four full years, so I know them very well and they're very close supervision. I only have four students or so a year because I cannot cope with any more. And uh, of course, I got to know them better. And some who, who graduated and stayed in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur, nearer where I work, uh, then uh, when I needed, you know, like I had a whole data set that I did not have time to analyze. I just called them, would you like to learn how to analyze data and all that? And they came. They are very hardworking. So we I sit with them, you know, weekends, evenings, we go to the data, show them how to do SPSS analysis. And we wrote some papers. And this particular mentee of mine, of course, has been with me for 12 years. She's, she says, I'm still mentoring her. In fact, she wrote, so I say, oh, did I mentor you well? And she wrote a whole list of things that I mentored her in. But she is now, of course, a professor. So she over the 12 years or so. So, of course, a lot of it is due to her hard work, her enthusiasm, her hard work. She was very keen to learn. So that helps. And that would be some of the attributes of a good mentee. Uh, and, and since then, I've also mentored a few more others, the more junior doctors who also became my, who were my, 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 my supervisees, who are still with me and they're still doing work together. And That's then lately, I, and then lately, because I joined Sunway University, I was from University of Malaya. I'm even mentoring someone who's who is early career, not young, but early career. And yesterday we were having an interview for about my wash with uh, 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 an organization. Uh, she said, you are still continuing to mentor me, you know, in a way of how we do all these things. So in a way, I think it's very important to help them. And what I do in mentorship is I try and identify, see what they said they're interested in, try and, of course, make them interested in hypertension if they haven't chosen what they are interested in. And then try and find opportunities for them. Like one of them, I said, why don't you join the International Sahabian Women's Arm? And so now she's there, she's involved in research there, she's in the committee, uh, 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 and so on and so forth. I try and get them to be speakers at local conferences, you know, into committees and so on. So I, in a way, and then I tell them, okay, the five-year plan is you should have a five-year plan. So I actually do a lot of planning for them. You should achieve this, you should achieve this, and so on and so forth. So it is career mapping for them to some extent, uh, finding them opportunities, providing them opportunities, and then allow them to grow. That's what I do. You know, in oh, that beautiful. Sense. No, thank you. That's really beautiful. And you already answered some of my other questions. Yes, yes I just realized. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. No, that was really beautiful to hear. Um, I was wondering if you can uh, mention if there was a specific time in your career that you realized you needed a mentor. I was fortunate in the sense that very early in my career, I had these few people who were helping me. And from there, I just went on and developed because I then became very interested in hypertension because I hadn't decided what I was going to, 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 to sub-specialize or make my interest in. And so therefore, that's how it grew. Uh, uh, of course, along the way, there were also other people helping. Uh, the more recent thing I can think of is this uh, Hope Asian Network, which is the Asian network that was headed by uh, Professor Cario uh, from GG Medical School. Again, that was serendipity. We were just, you know, a company called us together just to meet and talk about hypertension. And from there, and then I suggested, why don't we, 
you know, do some, you know, things like consensus because there's very little information is available that we can get hold of. With so many members, we'll be able to do something. And indeed, that's what we did. And we have grown so much. We have done very well. And of course, this mentorship or leadership still is there, comes from Professor Cario. You know, he's very good at doing it. Uh, you know, sort of, we, we decide and we set what we're going to do for the next two years, one year, and so on and so forth. Now, I like that you mentioned that you had different mentors, that it was not just one person, because I think that's also a bit of a misconception sometimes that mm. mentees have, that they have one supervisor and they have one mentor and, and that's all that they need. While we can gain so much from having this team of mentors from different exposure to people and different yes. skills and experiences. So I really yes. like that you mentioned that. Yes, absolutely. I think, you, you know, uh, having one you need to add more flavor and more, more exposure from other people as well, particularly people from other countries, because otherwise your mentorship is only blinkered, only for Malaysia. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And um, you mentioned some of the traits that one of your mentees in particular uh, had. I was wondering if there are any other traits that you think good mentees have in general. Uh, as I mentioned, they must be hardworking. And I want them to be inclusive, you know, when they do work uh, or they themselves start to think about projects, you know, because we have lots of funding that they can apply for, that they are inclusive and they're not selfish. I think that's very important. Just being hardworking alone is not enough. Absolutely. And one of the things I always tell my, my, my men mentees when we're analyzing data, I said, we've got to make sure the data is absolutely correct. There must be no mistake about it because then whatever, if a mistake has been spotted, Nobody, your credibility is gone. Nobody will ever believe anything you publish because I certainly wouldn't if I find, oh my goodness, this is you know completely wrong. I wonder whether everything else is wrong. So I need them to be very clear about it, that there should be no dishonesty in any of the things we publish. So, so I think they are also getting that message and I hope that uh, they will, of course, you know, uh, 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 adhere to those things. That's not what a mentee, characteristic, but I want them to have that as well. So basically, they're all hardworking. I want them to be hardworking. I want them to be inclusive, not selfish and honest. So these are the things I look for in a mentee. Well, that's a very good uh, profile, uh, very important traits. And um, when sometimes uh, trainees are looking for a place to do their PhDs or after they finish the PhDs to move on to do a postdoc, it is really uh, crucial to identify a good place to go to. I was wondering if you have any advice on how uh, to identify a good training environment. Uh, usually, of course, it depends on what their interest is. What happened is that in my university, I actually asked the dean, when I was the head of the department, can you give me two scholarships for my lecturers, my juniors lecturers, to go and pursue a PhD program? Uh, because in primary care, in my university, most of the clinicians do not have a PhD because we see no need for that. We are all professionally trained, which is much more important than spending four years, three to four years doing a PhD that may not have relevance to your clinical practice, to the teaching of students, except for the research part. And so uh, he did give it to me. And then I then I tried to identify places for them to go, depending on their interest. And in fact, one of them, I took her along to a center where my colleague who's the dean there to see whether she would do it there and whether we could find her a suitable uh, 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 supervisor. Uh, 
And so that's how I do it. Now, of course, I don't have to hold the hand so much uh, because of the, my networking. It is easy for me to get them into anything. You know, I'm not trying to boast, but it is very useful. So one of the, the in fact, my mentee herself, she needed to be sent somewhere to do during her sabbatical leave. I said, all right, you go to my colleague in Cambridge, elderly, go and go there. And she did that. She, she analyzed data, she learned things, and she got a paper out of it with the colleagues from UK. And then, uh, you know, like the World Heart Federation, they used to hold the, the summer school to train people on research. I was very lucky in that sense because my, my, my mentor, which I forgot to mention, was Professor Katie Cole from Cambridge when I tried to learn something about elderly care. I spent a year with her and she happened to be one of the, the organizers of that. And I was on sabbatical leave in the UK, so I was quite free. She said, why don't you come along to this? And then I went there and it was in a way an eye opener. She says, you are too advanced, you're too far ahead for this, but never mind, come along anyway, uh, because there was some slots and it was good uh, 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 eye-opener for me for young researchers. So what I did was then the next few years, I, I told one of my mentees, three, four of my mentees have all successfully been uh, applied and got into this training program. So, so that's how I identified. Like we also have the Asia Pacific Summer School for, for also talk about research. Again, I know of this and then I'll get my fellows to try and join them and say, go for all these things. So that's how I, I look for training opportunities for them. Like that's also to do with committee committee work, all the extra things that we are doing. Yeah, yeah. And um, one other question that I wanted to ask you, and that's usually related to me, that uh, I find a lot of people quite intimidating. So to go to a conference and approach someone that I don't know, um, these days is a little bit easier because I have had a lot of practice. But in my early years as a PhD student or early postdoc, it was really hard. I was wondering if you have any advice on how um, our junior researchers can go and talk to someone that they find intimidating. Yeah, I was thinking the first thing you do is make them your friend. Make them your friend. Because I always remember my husband telling me when I started a career, he says, never make enemies. And I found that little advice useful. Not so much intim intimidating. Sometimes when you meet somebody just once, whether it's per hormones or whatever, you sort of say, oh, I don't really like that guy. He looks, you know, this and that. You know, I think we all very quickly stereotype certain people. And of course, I try to empty my mind of that and say, I'm going to try and be nice. And, you know, maybe we may in the end find each other uh, interesting and likable. So, so that's what I what I do. So I tell the people, just go, go and talk to them. Especially when you're young, you can pretend to be stupid. Because here is the big professor who is an expert. They love it when you ask them questions. You pretend you don't know, you know, because they feel proud. I know more than you. I will tell you all these things. And this is what I tell my students too, because when they go to, to, to a, 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 a specialist, I say, you got to, you know, pretend to be stupid. It doesn't matter. You are a student. You are young. You are not supposed to be as clever as them. So do that. And I think it works in some ways because I think people who are very senior, and I find the more senior they are, the more humble they are. Although they look intimidating, very famous, they're actually very humble, very willing That's to right, help. Yeah. Uh, 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 not the converse that we think they are arrogant and things like that, you know. So, so, so it has been good. So I, in the old days, also I wouldn't dare to speak to anyone. Nowadays, I would dare to speak. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I also wanted to ask you some questions, and we spoke a little bit in the beginning of this conversation about diversity and inclusion. 
And uh, I think there has been a big shift in the world in the last decade uh, and emphasis in this topic that is really refreshing to see. Um, I was wondering if you can comment on what you think the biggest barrier around diversity and inclusion is. And uh, if you can think of, or if you know of any strategies that we could apply to the hypertension field specifically to try to uh, improve it. Yeah, I think I can only speak about it, you know, from Malaysia's view, because I do not know too much except from what I read in the papers about diversity and you know gender equality. As I mentioned in, in Malaysia, we are very lucky in the sense that our women are already everywhere. They can hold very important positions like the uh, chief executive of our Sunway Education Group is a woman. She's very powerful in that sense. You know, Our previous chief auditor of the country was a woman. So I, I do not think any of us think that there is a glass ceiling. Women in particular, there is a glass ceiling. Um, so, so, so it is not so much an, a problem for us. But I think very importantly is that we as women need to, 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 to prove ourselves in some ways. Uh, not, you know, because yes, the men will view us a little bit differently and all that not. But if we prove that we can work just as well as them, uh, maybe even better if, I, if I'm allowed to say that, then I see no problem why we shouldn't be uh, uh, eligible, shouldn't be included in any of the top positions, posts or whatever we, 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 there is. You know? So as I said, Malaysia is slightly different. I, I think that in... Of course, women in general tend to be more, you know, introverted. We don't have that Y chromosome that makes them want to go and battle and be the leader. We all want to take a back seat uh, in many ways. Like if I'm asked to be associate dean, I don't really want to be an associate dean. I don't want all that all the extra things. Not that they don't want women. I, I just don't want to do it because I don't need that sort of notice in a way, you know. Right? So women tend to do that. Maybe we are our own enemy in the sense that we don't, show what we are able to do and willing to do. So, so I think in some ways, if we were to show our ability not to be so uh, reserved about it, maybe it would be less of a problem. And that would be maybe my, my, my sort of view for other countries. And I think men think women as a threat because the stereotype is they are aggressive, they are you know uh, uh, rude and things like that. So I think we have to change that that stereotyping a little bit. We are women. That's all we. That's all there is. You know, we are no different from you. Yeah, that is a a lot of research, um, and and at least it applies to countries like Australia that we see that. Uh, even for the number of um, uh, PhD graduates, for example, uh, are similar uh, between men and women that by the time that you get to more senior positions, such as a, a professor, that only 15, 20% will be uh, women. Um, there's also a lot of uh, uh, data showing conscious and unconscious bias that, uh, that even if uh, people would be given to CVs, that they would always rank that men, even for the, the name was the only difference, uh, they would rank the men higher or um, the, the many other uh, examples. And, uh, and it's interesting to see how, um, how you don't think that that applies to Malaysia. And I think that it's really wonderful and perhaps there are many things that we should be looking into yeah. how it is different in Malaysia in this case. Actually, having said that, I remember now what happened when I, when I finished my house job. I had to apply for a 
job as a medical officer in the University of Malaya Medical Center, which was very hotly contested. And I, I put in my application. Then I spoke to one of the consultants who was, I was working under him in one of the wards, the neurology ward, and uh, that I'm applying. And he said to me, you have everything going for you except you're a woman. Oh, now, this is where the gender thing was a problem. That got me pretty mad in the sense. And, and I think it's not because I'm a woman per se, but the fact that because I'm a woman, I'll get married, I'll have children, uh, I will be taking medical leave at, you know, leave at the drop of a hat because my child is sick, you know, I'll be away for so many months from work that he, as a boss, would not want his services threatened. So he would rather pick a man. I can see that because I've been head of department as well. And I, I, my department was full of women. And this is where all the social problems are because the women have to take on that role, not the husband as much. So I don't think it's because we are women per se, but because of the implications of them being a mother, being, you know, this sort of things that is, I don't know, we have to speak to the men about it in a way. Yeah, yeah, good, good point. Yeah. And uh, there is some research as well showing that uh, if there is an application that required, let's say, 10 different skills, that men would apply even if they tick just a couple of the boxes, while women would wait until they tick all 10 boxes to apply. So there could be even differences in uh, that as well. So, yes, it's... Um, That's what I'm saying. We ourselves are sort of our worst enemy. Why don't we take all 10, you know, why do we have to take all 10 boxes? Just take five and go for the interview or apply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think that that's really important that we um, talk about it because I wasn't aware of it and, and it had a huge influence on my career path as a result when I became aware and I try to remove my own uh, unconscious bias against myself as a result. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I think we are our worst enemy, you know, our own enemy. Yeah. 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 No, thank you for raising that. Yeah. And um, I think we spoke about yeah, advice for women in hypertension specifically. Um, my last question for you then is about the impact of the pandemic. Uh, I'm not sure how it went in uh, Malaysia, but in uh, Australia, particularly in Melbourne, we had um, a lot of, we had six different lockdowns. Hmm. We had over 200 days of lockdowns and that had a huge impact on research. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on what we as a community could do to better support our junior researchers that have been impacted during the pandemic that will have a, a reduced uh, uh, productivity had reduced chances of securing grants because perhaps there's less grants uh, and uh, yeah, all of these impacts, how we can uh, help our uh, junior researchers. Uh, yes, certainly it has an impact. It impacted our May measurement month, as you know. Uh, yeah, true. Uh, for the last two years, I couldn't do it. Then we decided, well, the first year of course, 2020 was a total loss. We couldn't do it at all because we were at the height of it, started in, March, we had a lockdown, and then May, of course, is, is the May measurement month. Then the following year, we decided to do it a little bit differently. We said we'll use the retail pharmacies because people still have to go and get their medicines and all that. But there was a very, very poor response. It was a total, we took so much time organizing, recruiting 150 retail pharmacies who agreed to do it, you know, and, and, and it only got 230 people. I'm almost given up on the whole thing. Yeah. 
Then, of course, uh, other research, maybe not so much in hypertension. I've got other, other projects that I am involved in. We then look at other ways of doing it. Uh, one was a huge grant that we got. We couldn't do anything because it's still the elderly and they are the risk group. So then we turned into online. We, we redesigned our way. So we now move into online way of doing the data collection as well as intervention even. So that's where, where, where it, it gives birth to new ideas. Again, so for individual uh, uh, research, like I have two currently doing uh, uh, research on the elderly intervention and cognition, they were also impacted. So I said, you just have to go online to go and recruit, online to collect the questionnaire. And indeed we did, and they've managed to overcome that. So we need to support, need to give them ideas of how to do it and help them to, 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 to do it because it's new to them. It's also new to us, but then we also learn along the way uh, 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 in that sense. In terms of grants, everything came to a halt. There was no grants you know, available and it was very, very difficult. But fortunately for many of us, we have existing projects. So we did not feel the pressure to apply for new grants just yet. Uh, but now it's happening again. Uh, grants are opening up and everybody's scrambling to apply for it again. No, thank you. I think that's uh, that's interesting to see the impact as well in different regions, and uh, and I think it is something that we need to be considering as a um, as a regional uh, and a global uh, society on how we can try to support our genetic researchers to minimize the impact at the long term. Yes, very important. I'm just thinking when will we be able to do May Measurement Month again, where we recruit, we went out to community, we went out to schools, we went out to everywhere and did all the screening. I true. think it's going to be very, very difficult. Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Professor uh, Yokching, uh, thank you so much. It has been a real pleasure to talk to you and learn more about your career path and your, your uh, passion. And you seem to have done such an amazing job supporting those around you. It's a true honor to talk to you. Thank you very much, Francine. It was very nice talking to you. And thank you very much for inviting me to do this interview. It made me reflect a little bit on what I've done and what I need to do more in that sense. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.